good to be back in the book of Hebrews again. Hebrews is, uh, we're really in the heart of the letter here with the, uh, the quote out of Jeremiah on the new covenant. And uh, we are going to go uh, painstakingly slow, hopefully not too painful, but we are going to go slow through this. And so today I want to cover verse 9. Um, and uh, somehow I got to make a 45 minute out of verse 9. <laughs> so, uh, try, you know, not really something I struggle with, to be honest with you. I struggle having to, uh, ma- you know, chop my sermons down uh, because there is so much here for our instruction. And let's pray one more time and uh, we will begin uh, with this, uh, this study. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we acknowledge our great and deep need of you. Lord, we acknowledge the fact that we need the new covenant. We need a covenant that promises the great things that are contained in this scripture. We need our sin forgiven. We need your law written on our heart and on our mind. We need you to keep us from being wayward so that we will not turn away from you. Lord, we need to know you, as it says here, to know the Lord from the least of us to the greatest of us. And, oh, Lord, we thank you so much for the marvelous promise that is contained here that says that you will not remember our sin anymore. Help us to walk in the encouragement and in the victory of that. Help us to walk in the joy of knowing that our conscience is cleansed. And Lord, for any here who have yet to come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, may the the words of my mouth and may the words of Scripture land on them with great gravity so that they would see their need for the Savior and fly to the cross. Please help us, Lord. We are needy people. We're weak. Father, we are lowly and we need you to help us now and strengthen us by your mighty word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are looking at what I have entitled the glory of the new covenant, the glory of the new covenant. And what we're going to do today is we are going to do a bit of comparison from old covenant to new covenant and speak about some contrasts and some, uh, some points of, of agreement. But you know, if you noticed verse 9, uh, then you notice that what was referred to there was the Exodus generation. Look at the verse again. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand and I led them out of the land of Egypt. And so the new covenant is cast in the language of the Exodus redemption. And so our minds are meant to go back to the work of God in the Exodus. And really, when you think about what was the Exodus... Why is it in your Bibles where it is at? What is the significance of what took place during the Exodus? Well, let me tell you what it is uh, all about. Uh, The Exodus, you remember, comes as a result of Joseph going into the land of Egypt and eventually ascending up into the throne. And then after Joseph passes away, the Jewish people multiply to such an extent that the Pharaoh sees them as a great threat takes them to cap- under captivity, enslaves them as slaves, and puts a heavy burden where they're to toil and build, uh, build the, the empire of Egypt with, uh, but with, with mud and with straw. 
what it represents is a great threat to a great promise. The promise that was promised was to the fathers, that God would give them a great land. But then we come to the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, and we find the people nowhere near their land where they're supposed to be. And so what Exodus represents is the greatest threat to the gospel promise, if we want to use our, our terms today, that we have seen in the pages of Scripture to date up to the book of Genesis. There was all, all sorts of, thre- of threats. There were the battles that uh, Abraham had to fight. There was, there was the threat that came at the, at the idea that Esau would kill Jacob. And why was that important? Why spend precious ink of Scripture to tell us that there was a feud between two brothers? Is it because God wants to teach siblings how to get along? I don't think so. It is to tell you how close the promised child, Jacob, came to losing his life and thus the promise itself being lost. See, God has always had his eye on his redemptive purpose, whether it is with a patriarch, whether it is with Israel as a whole nation. God has always had his eye on the promises that he has made for his people, the promises that you and I now enjoy. And these promises are new covenant promises. And so Jeremiah speaks into the void of another threat. And this time, Jeremiah is speaking to the people of Israel, not under Egyptian captivity, but under Babylonian captivity. These, these uh, 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 Israelites during this time have already been partially been taken captive into Assyria. And now, years later, now they're being taken captive into Babylon. And Babylon represents another great empire who is threatening to extinguish the people of God. And so what what, uh, Jeremiah does is he speaks of a glorious future redemption, one that will be greater than the redemption that was experienced under the first covenant, under the Mosaic covenant in the Exodus event. See, this is why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 that the prophets, when they spoke, they were not serving themselves, but they were serving us in the future when they spoke of these salvific events. They were serving us. Why? Because all the things that they prophesied about had a greater ultimate fulfillment through Jesus Christ. That's why. So what we're looking at here is as we go from thinking of the Mosaic covenant under the Exodus event to the new covenant and a new exodus is that we're going from good to better, we could say, from the lesser to the greater, from old to new. But it brings up some real questions of interpretation, and that is the issue of either the continuity or the discontinuity of the covenants. In other words, where does the old and new covenant agree and where do they disagree? Well, I hope to deal with some of that as we take this passage out of Hebrews and look at the prophecy of Jeremiah. I want to point out to you several points of either agreement or of disagreement. Disagreement. But let me begin by pointing out one thing, that a greater redemption is promised in the new covenant than there was in the old. It is greater in every way. It is greater to the point that it eclipses what happened under the old covenant. 
Uh, look down at uh, verse 13 here at the end of this chapter, because really as he begins to talk about old and new, old and new, old and new, and the new covenant is coming into greater and greater light, the old covenant is, 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 is beginning to dim, so much so that look at what he says in verse 13, an astounding statement. He says, when he says a new covenant, he has made the first covenant, that is, obsolete but whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to, f- to disappear or to fade away. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, because there uh, the Apostle Paul makes a very, very similar statement talking about the outshining of the old covenant with the new covenant and uh, all of its glory. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, for example. It says, but if the ministry of death, that's the way that the Apostle Paul talks about the Old Covenant, the ministry of death, why does he call it that? He calls it that because it was the ministry that produced death. See, the covenant itself could not produce life. It could not impart to you the power that you need to obey its demands. That's why it's called the ministry of death. In letters engraved on stones, it came with glory, no question about that, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, even though it was fading, fading as it was. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory. See, that kind of explains what he means by the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation. Same thing, same idea for the old covenant. If the ministry of condemnation had glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, that's the old covenant. The old covenant had glory. In this case, it has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. So what we're talking about here is the difference between the sun and the moon. Who who would say that the moon is not glorious? You enjoy the moon when it's real bright and full and there's a a full moon outside. It's a nice crisp night and you're looking out and there's this big, giant, blue, beautiful moon up in the sky. I don't know what color you would call it, but you, you know what I'm saying? It's there, it's shining, it's glorious. But as the hours go on, all of a sudden the glory of the moon begins to be outshined. So it's not that the glory of the moon was invalid. It is not that the glory of the moon was not there. It is not that it had no glory. It's that it has been surpassed by the glory of the sun. So that you no longer, uh, when it's noon, you don't look around for the glory of the moon anymore. (laughs) When it's noon, you don't need the moon. And when it's a new covenant, you don't need the old covenant anymore. That's what he's saying, because it has been outshined, outshined. But let me, uh, let me digress a little bit to talk about where there are points of agreement and where there are points of disagreement, because we never want to get into our minds and say, oh, God made a mistake under the old covenant then. No, he did not. No, he did not. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, why the old covenant was given in the first place. You know why it was given? Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, it was given for one reason, because people are sinners. <laughs> and who will, who will not attest to that, right? So as much as you know, yep, 
People are sinners. Well, then you see the rationale for why God had to give the old covenant. He had to give the stipulations of the law, the regulations. How is he going to govern an entire nation without giving them the laws and the, the, the ceremonies and the rituals and the dietary principles of the old covenant? That's why it was put forth. But now, there are many ways in which the covenants agree. So I'm going to give you continuity, discontinuity. And let me tell you this, when theologians sit to study this, this is really where the, this is really where the rub is at. Where do the covenants agree and where do they disagree, right? As Baptists, we might see a little less agreement. As Presbyterians, you might see a little bit more agreement, right? Um, that's fine. They, they can be wrong if they'd like. I'm happy to be a Baptist. And it's because, I think, of what it, we're going to go on to learn, even in this, even, I mean, on a serious note, even uh, in this text in chapter 8, what we have is, is an explanation of a fully effective covenant. This is not just a potential issue here. It is not that your baby, if you baptize them and grow them and raise them in the faith, perhaps they will come to have their sin forgiven. The new covenant belongs to those who have had their sins forgiven. So it is a totally efficacious covenant, but that is for another Lord's Day. Today I want to point out, first of all, the continuity between both covenants, and it's this, that both covenants can be said to be sovereignly administered. Look at uh, verse 9 again here. He says, not like the covenant which who made I made with their father. See, God took the initiative. By the way, what was Israel doing when God took the initiative to make a covenant with them? Did they deserve that covenant? Were they looking for that covenant? Did they stand up and say, we need a covenant from God? No, it was sovereignly initiated by God. It was sovereignly installed by God. The human parties are just recipients of the covenant activity of God. Why is covenant so important? You hear me up here using this term covenant, covenant, covenant. Why is it so important? Because, folks, covenant means you have a relationship with God. Covenant means you have a connection with God. Covenant means you are together, you are united with God. There's a bond, and we'll get to that in a minute, but there's an intimate bond between you and God. That's what covenant language is all about. And so, just as in the Old Covenant, the people of God were not the ones who initiated the Old Covenant, so too, in the New Covenant, we are not the initiators of the Covenant. God is the initiator of the Covenant. So, we can hear Jesus saying to His disciples, right after He talked about the New Covenant in John 13, He says in John 15, You did not choose Me. But I chose you. And then he says, and I appointed you to bear fruit. You know, the concept of bearing fruit is an old covenant concept. Uh, it wasn't that the disciples said, oh, this is a new thing. We've never heard this before, bearing fruit. <laughs> No, uh, Israel was to be a fruitful nation. They were the planting of the Lord. They were to have fruit. They were to be a light to the nations. And so what you're seeing under the new covenant is God sovereignly reconstituting his people under what we could say the new Israel, the true Israel under Jesus Christ. And in the same way that God sovereignly chose 
Israel, God sovereignly chooses us to be in the new covenant. What does God say? Deuteronomy chapter 7, he says, why did I choose you? (laughs) Isn't that amazing that God makes Israel contemplate that? (laughs) He wants Israel to think about that. Why were they chosen? And God says, it is not because you were greater than all the nations. It is not because you had more people. And what that means is you didn't have a greater military prowess. You didn't have a greater economy. You didn't have a greater uh, multitude. You didn't have a greater population. You didn't have greater lands. You didn't have greater kingdoms. You had, in fact, nothing. (laughs) He says, you were the smallest people. (laughs) So he makes them feel real puny so that they understand the reason why you are now entitled to the most glorious thing in all the universe, namely, to be God's people, is nothing owing to yourself. You weren't on the right track. You weren't doing good. You weren't, it wasn't because you were almost there and God just kind of wanted to close the deal. In fact, you were not a people. You were nothing. And I'll get to a little bit more of that in a moment. But uh, Hebrews chapter 9, emphasizing this exact same thing, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 says this, For this reason, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so that, for this reason, since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Well, that is all Old Covenant language. Redemption, eternal inheritance, promise. That's all language of the Old Covenant. But under the New Covenant, there is agreement. It is because they were chosen. They were called by God. I mean, think about the progenitor of the, of the Jewish people, Abraham. What was Abraham doing when God chose him? What was he up to? Was he a monk? Was he a pious man sitting somewhere in a temple? A priest somewhere? No! Joshua 24 says, as a matter of fact, Abraham, I mean, he doesn't even come from good stock. You know where he comes from? He comes from idolaters. He comes from ancestors that were bowing down to idols. And God in his infinite wisdom saw Abraham and he picked Abraham and he said, Abraham, I am going to use you to make a great multitude of people, right? And out comes the Abrahamic covenant. We talked a lot about that during Sunday school. Um, Really, um, if you're not coming to Sunday school, I really want to encourage you to try to be there because we just started studying ecclesiology, Uh, the doctrine of the church, which is so important for us to know what is a healthy church? What is the church? Where did the church come from? When did the church begin? All of these really important questions. But what about discontinuity? Where do they not agree? Where does the new and the old covenant not agree with one another? Where are they different, in other words? Well, it is with the issue of conditionality. The new covenant, unlike the old covenant, is unconditional. The old covenant was conditional. Look at uh, what verse 9 says again. It says that he made a covenant with the fathers on the day that he took them out of the hand, but they did not continue in my covenant, and as a result, I did not care for them. You see that? The condition was obedience, 
And why is this such great news for you and I? Because Galatians chapter 3 makes it very clear in Galatians chapter 2 and in many other places that the only condition for being in covenant community with God now is not adherence to the Torah. It is not bathing a certain way, eating a certain way, dressing a certain way, cutting your hair a certain way. Now, covenant faithfulness is conditioned upon only one thing, and that is faith. Faith. That's it. It is no longer the works of the law that keep you in the covenant. It is only and always now by faith alone. Where do you think the reformers got the principle of sola fide? Sola fide. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Luther or read one of Luther's biographies, but there's Luther. Luther was a monk. <laughs> and Luther, and Luther uh, had a scary moment. He was in a lightning storm. He got caught, remember? And he got so scared that he screamed out, help me, St. Anne, I will become a monk. Why did he call on St. Anne? St. Anne was the miner's saint. Uh, she was the one that, her, that he grew up, his father, who was, was a minor, would have prayed to St. Anne. So he called on the nearest religious thing that he can think of, St. Anne, save me. I'll become a monk. And what did Luther do after that? Well, he did indeed become religious. He became a Catholic monk under the Augustinian order. And what Luther began to do is he began to seek for peace with God. And he tried everything that he could to have peace with God, so much so that eventually he even fell into asceticism, harsh treatment of the body, whipping himself, depriving himself as a means to hopefully, if I treat myself bad enough, deny myself enough, maybe God will love me, right? Until he fell on those glorious words in Romans chapter 1, by faith, the righteous shall live, right? And he saw, there it is. There's everything I've ever needed right there. You are saved by faith. We don't need, he doesn't need to do all this external stuff. He crawled on his knees in Rome seeking forgiveness from God. He crawled up the, the, the uh, one of the famous monasteries that, the, the, um, I don't know which one it is right now, but the stairs, he got up on his knees. He did everything that they asked him to do. He did his indulgences. He did all the religious stuff. And how many people today, how many young Baptist kids are in that place right now thinking that they need to crawl on their hands and knees and maybe God will accept them, trying so hard to do what mommy and daddy expect them to do so that hopefully at the end of the day, maybe I did enough and maybe I will be accepted. When you have the glorious opportunity to tell your kids, it is by faith alone. You cannot earn what mother and father have. You cannot earn your way into Christianity. You cannot earn your way into the new covenant. You either receive it with the invisible hand of faith or you don't. And that is where they disagree. The old covenant was conditioned upon obedience, and we'll get to that. Another point of continuity, therefore, is that both covenants were gracious, though. We don't want to devoid the old covenant of grace. The old covenant was gracious because, remember, where was Israel when God made the covenant with them? 
look at the phrase here, and I say that because of the text. It says, it says here that he made this covenant with them on the day when what? He took them by the hand. And he led them out of the land of Egypt. This is a merciful God reaching down to his people that are in big, big trouble. And he grabs them by the hand and he leads them out of their miserable bondage and to a greater degree. How much more grace do we see in the new covenant? We are not taken out of the bondage of an oppressive regime. We have been taken out of the bondage of the oppressive principle of sin. As Paul makes it very clear in Romans chapter 6, we were slaves of sin. As he goes on to say to Timothy, we were held captive by the devil to do his bidding. We were enslaved to sin, the world, the devil. We were trapped. Jesus said, he who sins is a slave of sin. We have been graciously liberated by God freed from sin to be enslaved to God. What a glorious freedom. That is freedom. To be enslaved to God means we are truly free. What an amazing paradoxical reality. Another point of discontinuity that's very important is this, that unlike the old covenant, the new covenant is permanent. Permanent. You see that there again in verse 13 where he says, He's making the first one obsolete. And whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and it's ready to disappear. But guess what? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 says that God brought up Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the what? The eternal covenant. And this is because the Old Testament indicated that a new covenant was coming that would be eternal. It would be everlasting. It would be unending. But the, new co- the old covenant, excuse me, was provisional. It was temporary. It was just for a time. It served a purpose. What purpose did it serve? Well, many purposes. One we've already talked about. It served the purpose to keep sin in check. Imagine if God didn't give the people of God in the old covenant the old covenant. Imagine the rampant crazy anarchy that would have erupted in the, in the nation. It probably would have dissolved as a nation anyway. But under the new covenant, we have a more sure word. We have a perfect, eternal, abiding, everlasting covenant. Why do we need this? We need this, dear brothers because and brothers and sisters, because they broke the old covenant. You see? They broke the old covenant. Uh, Here in your uh, text in Hebrews chapter 8, it says, they did not continue in my covenant. But the literal Hebrew phrase is that they broke the old covenant. It was shattered through their disobedience. They did not continue in righteousness. Remember uh, Hebrews 8, 7. If the first covenant would have been faultless, There would have been no occasion sought for a second. But the point is, it wasn't faultless. Why? Well, because. Verse 8 goes on to say, finding fault with them. They broke the old covenant. But what is necessary is a covenant that we cannot break. That is a major distinction in theology. Really, I'm going to be, I guess, harping a lot today on Presbyterians. But And you know how much I love Presbyterians. 
But the Presbyterians believe the new covenant can be broken. It is a breakable covenant. When you baptize a child and you sprinkle them with water and you charge them and you raise them and you train them in the way that they should go, and if they get old and they depart from their their Christian uh, tradition, their Christian family, their Christian heritage, they have broken the new covenant. If a person apostatizes from the church, they have broken the new covenant. And I am here to tell you, no, they never were in the new covenant. They never were in the new covenant, and that's the reality. The reality is, is that we need a covenant that cannot be broken. Because let me ask you this question. If the, co- if the new covenant could be broken, how long would it take you to break it? <laughs> right? Uh, probably 1.1 second. <laughs> right? We would break that covenant so fast, man. Your, your, your neck would snap. I mean, we would break that covenant so quickly. God, in His grace, made a covenant with us that we cannot break. This is a dangerous uh, thing that I'm about to say. You can sin, and you can still be in the new covenant. But that's the truth. That's the reality of it. Tell me one author of Scripture that didn't have sin. Tell me one believer in the New Testament that is without sin. John says, if you dare say that you have no sin, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. See, the power of the new covenant is that it overcomes our sin. It overpowers our sin. Where our sin abounds, His grace abounds much more than our sin. When our hearts fail us, He remains faithful. When we are unfaithful, He remains faithful. That's the power of the new covenant. And guess what that truth produces? More sinful living? No. More lawlessness? No. More ungodliness? No. It produces holiness. That is the principle of the new covenant. The Spirit dwelling in us will not allow us to take advantage of the grace of God. Not utterly so that we live in sinful oblivion. No. The Spirit teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. That's the power of the Word of God being the law of God being written on the heart and in the mind. Oh, there's so much here. But let me just um, move forward there to another point, and that is this. Not only is there a greater uh, covenant a greater redemption that is promised in the new covenant. But there's also a greater covenant bond. This is what got me really excited because the men, we've been studying communion with God. What does it mean to have communion with God, with the triune God? But uh, we know that we need a stronger bond because look at verse 9 again. Look at verse 9 again. It says, They did not continue in my covenant... And then you hear these dreadful words. And I did not care for them, says the Lord. Let me ask you a question. When have you ever heard, as a Christian, when have you ever heard God tell you, or when have you ever read? We don't want to get into, you know, God tells me. (laughs) When have you ever heard a preacher tell you, When have you ever heard somebody preach the Word of God to you in the church of God, in the new covenant, and have them tell you, you know what? God does not care for you anymore. Never! 
Will you hear God saying to a new covenant believer, I do not care for them? That would be dreadful. And this shows us the the supremacy of the new covenant bond that we have with God. So this is what I'm saying, that what is found here is not only not only a superior covenant, but a superior covenant bond. It is a communion bond where we commune with God. See, God had promised to bless Israel, and He made all sorts of wonderful promises to them. As a matter of fact, turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 28. I want you to see this. Um, No question, under the old covenant, God had made astounding promises, very meaningful promises, promises that uh, are very practical, very tangible. I mean, we're talking about promises for the economy, the agriculture, their fertility, their military protection, all these things. I want to point this out to you. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 11, you'll see. Deuteronomy 28, 11 says, the Lord will make you abound in prosperity. Who doesn't want that? in the offspring of your body, in the offspring of your beast, in the produce of your ground, in the land that the Lord swore to the fathers to give you. The Lord will open for you His good storehouse, the heavens, he, uh, to give you rain on your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. And you shall lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. You see the, see the financial economic prosperity that is promised there? The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You, you, only, you, will, excuse me, you only will be above and you will not be underneath. If you listen to the commands of the Lord your God, which I charge you today to observe them carefully and do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today to the left or to the right to go after other gods to serve them. That was the condition. Stay faithful. Observe, observe the commands. Or... As Deuteronomy 28 will go on to say, unthinkable curses will come. See, this is God telling the people of Israel, obey me, follow me, and I will bless you all over the place. I will bless you in every area of your life. Don't we want that? I'll bless you in the home, bless you in the kitchen, bless you in the garage, bless you in the backyard, bless you at work, bless you at church, bless you when you're in traffic. (laughs) I will bless your stocks. I will bless your bank account. I will bless your work. I will bless everything. But if you disobey, if you disobey, then I will curse you in the home, curse you in the marriage, curse you in the family, curse you in the land. And all these awful cursings came to pass, as we're going to see. They came to pass. All of these terrible, terrible cursings came to pass. For example, look, at, look with me to Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3. Because already, already, Jeremiah begins to talk about their disobedience at a different time with a different people. And it's terrible. Remember, God warned, don't, if you don't obey my commandments, he went somewhere with that. Don't obey. He didn't just say, oh, you're going you're gonna to end up... Uh, you're going to end up making bad financial investments. No, you know what he says is you're going to end up serving other gods. That's how bad the disobedience will become. It will lead to idolatry. It will. And in Jeremiah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we get that exact picture of things really bad before Babylon. God says 
If a husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and belongs to another man, will he still return to her? Will not that land be completely polluted? But you are a harlot with many lovers. Yet you turn to me, declares the Lord. You lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see, where have you not been violated? By the roads you have sat, you've sat for them like an Arab in the desert. Oh, picture of a person out in the middle of a desolate land somewhere, having no earthly business being out there, and yet that's what you, you will go, in other words, in other words you will go to great heights, you will go to great lengths to engage in your spiritual harlotry. That's what he's saying. And you have polluted the land with your harlotry and with your wickedness. Therefore, the showers have been withheld. And there has been no spring rain. Yet you had a harlot's forehead. You refused to be ashamed. You see that? So this is God essentially serving the people of God a certificate of divorce. Matter of fact, he says that in Hosea, a parallel passage in Hosea says, I am serving you a certificate of divorce. We're divorcing because you refuse to depart from your lovers. That's what he's saying. And that's very important because, let me read to you something out of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 26, beginning in verse 11, the greatest covenant promise of all is contained here. The greatest covenant promise of all is contained here. Leviticus 26, 11. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. This is the apex of the covenant. What is the whole point of it all? You walk out of here today and you go eat dinner tonight. Ask yourself, what is the whole point of it all? The whole point of the covenant? It is that God would dwell with you. That you would have fellowship with your covenant God. That you would know in an intimacy with the God that called you. That's what it is all about. This is the greatest disaster of the old covenant. They lost their privilege to commune with the covenant God. He no longer wanted to dwell in their midst. And that's terrifying. And therefore, we need a covenant that cannot be broken. We need a covenant so that we will never have to say, God no longer cares about me. God has turned away from me. God divorced me. That's it. You did it. You crossed the line. You sinned so gravely. This time you are finished. You no longer have communion with God, access with God, peace with God. You no longer will know the mercy of God. And so what does God do? He gives us a covenant where he will never fail to do us good. Never, never, never. Look with me to Isaiah 55. So I'm covering one verse, but that's just my way of saying we're covering about 20 verses. <laughs> Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 1, we hear about this unfailing love that we get in the new covenant. It's so beautiful. Isaiah 55, verse 1 through 5. says, Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? Your wages for what does not satisfy. 
Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear to me. Come to me, he says. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. He says, according to what? The faithful mercies shown to David. And if right there you're thinking, you mean King David? Yeah, because he was shown a lot of mercy, right? Truly he was. But something else is at work. Something else is at work. Look at this. Behold, I have made him, David, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader, a commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation. Who's the you? Behold, you, David, that's what he means here in the text, you, David, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation that knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you, David." This is obviously a messianic prophecy of the fact that through the new covenant, here it's called the everlasting covenant, through the new covenant, God is going to bring a people to Jesus that do not belong to him. Isn't that what Jesus said? Jesus said, I have many other sheep. I must call them also. And that's exactly what this is talking about. It is the engrafting of a Gentile nation into the people of God. And all of that because of the new covenant. And so, we end with this. We end with this. What the new covenant seeks to do for us is it seeks to provide us our deepest longing. It seeks to provide for us lasting satisfaction. You remember what God told the, the, uh, the Jews in Jeremiah 2? He says, Oh heavens, Jeremiah chapter 2, I think it's verse 18. I just turned there because I don't like to misquote verses. I'll read it because it's worth reading and it's in the same, it's in the same uh, breath as this. It says here in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12, Be appalled, O heavens, at this, shudder, be very desolate, declares, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. They hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Because they lost communion with their covenant God, they went to every other imaginable source for satisfaction and they came up dry every time. The new covenant promises that Jesus will satisfy us, that God will be our satisfaction, that we will come to him if we're thirsty, and we will thirst no more. That is what the new covenant is all about. If you were reading that uh, passage out of Isaiah, and it sounded familiar to you, right? Come to me if you thirst. <laughs> Who spoke that? Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 35, He who believes in me, they will never thirst. He says in John 7, 37, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me that he may drink. Isn't that amazing? And there's one more place where this passage, Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 5, 
is quoted more directly even, and it's at the very end of the world. It's at the very end of the world. It is in the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, to show us that in eternity and for all eternity, God will be satisfying us eternally. We will never hunger. We will never thirst. He, he, he promises to give to us what we cannot afford in and of ourselves, which is the greatest, deepest need that we have, and that is for a sinful soul to be made whole. He heals us. He cures us. He feeds us. He quenches our thirst. And for all eternity... We are drinking out of the river of life. I'm going to close just by reading Revelation 22, 17. I might say something. I probably will say something. Revelation 22, 17. Oh. Quoting Isaiah 55. The Spirit and the Bride. That's the church. This is what we need to be telling people. Come! And let the one who hears say, come! In other words, if you have an ear to hear what Revelation is saying, you need to be able to echo Isaiah's prophecy and say to people, come! Come! And let the one who is thirsty come! And the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. Free to us, brothers and sisters. Free to us, but it cost Jesus his blood. The blood of a new covenant. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for sending to us Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, that through the eternal blood of the eternal covenant, we can be satisfied, our thirst can be quenched, our hunger can be satisfied, and we will have to thirst no more. And keep us, even as people of God, even as your children, Lord, we pray, keep us, as Paul says, falling into the same trap as Israel. Paul says, this was an example for us, so that we will not crave evil. Keep us, Lord, from craving after things that don't satisfy. No matter what the world is saying, no matter what our flesh is saying, and no matter what our enemy is saying, we know that sin will not satisfy. And so help us, Lord God, to commune with you, knowing that now we have an unbreakable communion bond with the Savior. Let all of our fountains be in you. Thank you for the blood of the new covenant, Lord. Thank you for sending your Son to shed his blood for us, to, for accomplishing for us that which we could never do for ourselves, being a ransom being a propitiation, being our sacrifice, being the Lamb of God that was slaughtered for us. Thank you. We say thank you. And help us in the spirit of Isaiah to say to people, come. Come to the one who can satisfy your thirst. 
Lord, please give us the, the heart to know you and to know these things so deeply, so in- intimately, so experientially, Lord, that we can honestly say that we know you, that you are our covenant God, that you dwell among us, that we are your people and you are our God. In Jesus' name, amen.